the New Testament book of Romans. We'll be always, uh, all today, right there in, in chapter 1, the first few uh, passages. We'll begin reading uh, right there in verse 1, and then we're going to jump down to verse 13. So the epistle of Paul, the, the apostle, to the Romans. To the Romans. Verse number 1, Paul writes, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he had promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his Son Jesus Christ, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David, according to the flesh. Verse 4 says, And declared to be the Son of God with power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by the resurrection from the dead, by whom we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations, for his name, among whom all are ye also the called of Jesus Christ. Jump down to verse 13. Paul writes, Now I would not have you ignorant, brethren, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am debtor, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed, uh, revealed from heaven against all ungodliness who hold the truth in unrighteousness, because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Let us go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank You again for Your Word this morning. We thank you for these inspired words that you've led the Apostle Paul to write that are, that are timeless. Lord, we believe that your word is forever settled in heaven, and we have it here amongst us. We have it here in our hands before us, your eternal word. Lord, help us to, to understand it and to apply it to our lives. Whatever's on the agenda, whatever, whatever happened this past week or this past morning, Lord, all the difficulties in life, Lord, even the victories in life, Lord, let us put them all to the side for a moment. And let us see you high and lifted up. Speak to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let's just jump right in this morning. I want you to look at verse number one. He says, he's a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated unto the gospel of God, which he hath for, uh, promised afore by his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son. So what we see here is God has revealed unto us, number one this morning, the gospel of God. Paul was separated unto that gospel, separated unto the gospel of God. And I want to point out that Paul is writing this letter. There is no indication that he has ever been to Rome at this point. Never been there. The church there at Rome was most likely started by Pentecost. Those people that were saved at Pentecost, and they went all over the world. And Rome was one of those locations. And Rome at this time was the largest city in the world. Uh, estimates of over a million people, which is a lot of people in the, in the ancient world 2,000-some years ago. So he's writing this letter to a people he has never met. Not even one of them. Uh, and he says, the gospel of God which was promised afore by his prophets in the Holy 
scriptures. Now, the word gospel, we hear that word gospel today, and we automatically associate it with religion, something in the Bible, or, I mean, does it matter what kind of religion you are? We, we generally associate that word with something around what we're doing this morning, the gospel. Uh, it's a term only really associated. You don't really hear the word gospel outside of church talk, if I can call it that. But in the first century, that was not the case. It was used in, in the Greek, of course, more commonly. It means good news. Um, and the underlying Greek word is where we also get the word evangelize, which is the spreading of that good news. So evangelion and evangelion or however you, however you put those two words together. So the good news and the, and the spreading of the, good, of the good news. So we read here that God through his prophets had promised some good news. He promised us some good news. Verse 3 tells us that this good news is concerning Jesus Christ. It's concerning his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we also read that Jesus, or look there again, concerning his son Jesus Christ in verse 3, our Lord, which was made of the seed of David according to the son. I think it's interesting that he was made the seed of David, but the next verse tells us that he was declared to be the son of God. So Jesus was made flesh, but declared to be the son of God. He was made flesh. He was not made to be God's son. He was declared to be God's son. And that's a difference there. God has always been. Jesus Christ has always been. He wasn't one day. There's never a day when Jesus Christ wasn't Jesus Christ. There was never a day where he was not the son of God. He's always been. He is the eternal son of the eternal God. But he was made flesh for you and for me. And in that, we see that he was declared to be the son of God. Made flesh of the seed of David through the human birth. But then he was declared to be the son of God. Notice, notice there again in verse 4. Declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. The resurrection is God declaring that Jesus Christ is in fact his son. He would not have raised him up if he was not his son. So therefore, the good news that we're reading about here this morning concerning Jesus Christ is that he, as God, became man. I know we're, we're kind of getting close to Christmas here, and it's kind of interesting. Now, it's one of my favorite holidays. My other one would be Easter. I guess that's what a preacher's supposed to like, you know, those two holidays. Uh, but I love, I love the season. I don't even like... I mean, maybe I'm guilty. I even like the commercial stuff around Christmas. I know you don't hear that a lot from the pulpit. But I like all the bells and the whistles and the Christmas trees and all the lights and the, the snow and all those things. But I like, number one, the best, um, the, the good news, if you will, the good news of Christmas. God became flesh. I get excited about that. There's, there's not a whole lot of things I get excited about, but the things of God I do. And that's probably it, definitely at the top of the list. God became a man. That's the good news. He came, became man. He paid our sin debt on the cross of Calvary, and he was resurrected from the dead. I mean, what better good news is there? In the beginning of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul elaborates even a little further on what this gospel is. He says, moreover, brethren, I mean, let me just pause there. If you ever want a, a quick and, and nicely packaged definition of the gospel, commit to memory 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Now, just remember that because uh, the chapter is like 60 verses, but the first four verses is all you need. 
1 Corinthians chapter 15, Moreover, brethren, I'm going to skip around here, but I'm going to skip from 1 down to 4. Uh, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel, how that Christ died for our sins, according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day, according to the Scriptures, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel declared. And back in our text, we see that verse 5 tells us that it is through Him we have received grace. So, the simplicity of the gospel is that it is the death, burial, and resurrection. The sim- it's simple to understand that. And my mind, me and my wife have been talking about this and, and with a few other uh, missionaries this past week. And I'm boggled, my mind is boggled sometimes about how some things challenge the Word of God today. Like we see some, you know, we read through the book of Daniel, and history tells us that this didn't happen the way Daniel said it would happen. So, and many Christians say, well, I guess maybe the book of Daniel was wrong. But when we get to the crucifixion and the resurrection, somehow we believe a miraculous thing happened when God raised up Jesus from the grave. You know, science can't prove a resurrection. But by faith, we accept what science de- cannot prove, what science defies, what defies science. We believe the resurrection. And my takeaway is I'm just going to believe the whole book. If I can wrap my head around a man coming out of the grave, I can believe every word of this book. And that's the gospel message, the simplicity of the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And is it not the best news? I mean, think of, think of that if you were sick and you were dying of something that was, I mean, imminent death was coming around the corner, whether, whether it was, I mean, something real like, you know, some sickness and, I don't know, cancer or whatever it may be. And somebody came and brought you the cure and it was pr- a proven cure. Wouldn't you be excited that you could live for 20 or 30 more years? And if so, how much more will we be excited to learn the good news of the gospel that gives us eternal life? Eternal life. We have received grace, and that grace is only from God through Jesus Christ. John chapter 1, verse 17 states that grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. You see, quite frankly, if we are left to ourselves, we are without hope. Without Christ, you are dead in your sins. I mean, really, think about this for a moment. If we could honestly take a good, honest, hard look at our heart, what would we see? What would we see? Would we see righteousness and joy and perfectness and all those things that go along with uh, go along with that? I think that we would see that we that I know what I see. I see that I fall short of my own standards. Don't even bring in God's standards yet. I fall short of my own standards. We're sinners. But God commendeth his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, he died for us. He died for us. Yes, we're not supposed to be all woe is me because of all the sin and all those things are true and the eternal death that comes along with the punishment of our sin. We cannot stay there and we shouldn't stay there, nor should we ignore the fact that we are there. But we should be excited about this good news who can deliver us from the penalty of death. That is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The death Uh, The the grave couldn't hold him. Death could not hold him. He was resurrected, and that's the best news. And if he was resurrected, and if we put our personal faith in him, you and I also can be resurrected. In fact, you are resurrected, spiritually speaking, and you will be resurrected in the body. 
which when it comes to what this really means, what does this good news mean for us today? And we talked a little bit about that, but what are we to do? What, are, what is the world to do with the good news? Or maybe I should put it this way. What, what can the good news do for me? What can the good news of Jesus Christ do for me? Let's talk about the power of God this morning. So we have the gospel of God, and now we're going to look at the power of God. Jump down again to verse 13. The Bible says, Now I would not have you ignorant, that oftentimes I purposed to come unto you, but was led hitherto, that I might have some fruit among you also, even as among other Gentiles. I am a debtor to the, both to the Greeks and to the barbarians, both to the wise and the unwise. So as much as in me is, I am ready to preach the gospel to you that are at Rome also, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So after Paul readily admits that he is in debt to all men because he was made aware of the good news. In fact, he was actually called to be a preacher of the gospel. We see that very clear there. But after he readily admits his shortcomings, he admits, or some of those shortcomings, he admit, in those shortcomings, he admits that he is in debt to all men. And not only should he preach the gospel and be ready to preach the gospel, uh, preach the gospel but he is also not ashamed of the gospel. Uh, many, many passages have been, or many sermons rather, have been preached from these three I am's, if you will. I am a debtor, I am ready, and I am a, I'm not ashamed. The three I am's of Paul. And you can see the reason why Paul wasn't shamed. I want you to point that out. I want, I want you to see that very clearly in verse 16. Why was Paul not ashamed of the gospel? Because it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. He wasn't ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. Now we could probably park there on what ashamed or what, what shames us or what we are ashamed of or what we can boldly do or what we timidly do. Paul says, I am not ashamed of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I'm not ashamed of that story. I'm not ashamed of that good news because it's the power of God unto salvation. Now, after you read through this, if you were to go home or maybe even before this, uh, if you have read through this passage of, a few times, and we've already read it once, but Paul gives us a few characteristics of himself that we can see clearly here. He says, I'm a debtor, I'm ready, and I'm not ashamed. And I know we've talked about what we could preach from that, but I want to tie these three things together a little differently this morning by asking this question. Why was Paul in debt? Why was Paul in debt? Why was Paul ready to preach the gospel? And again, why was he not ashamed? I think the answer is the same for all of these. Because the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. You might be thinking, you know, okay, big deal. It's the power of God unto salvation. But Paul experienced this. So this salvation is not just to the Greeks. It's not just to the barbarians. It's not just to the wise and the unwise. Not just to the Jew first, but to Paul. Personally, he knew the power of God. You see, he didn't consider himself indebted to humanity because it sounded good, because it's what Christians should do. He, he wasn't ready to preach boldly just because. 
just because he come up with, he mustered up some phony boldness to preach the gospel. No, he had personally experienced the power of God. He experienced the power of God unto salvation. And in reality, we can actually outline Paul's characteristics this way. You know, we get the three, the three I am's there, right? Let's look at it this way. Four I am's. I am a Christian. I am a debtor. I am ready to preach. And I am not ashamed. Or better yet, because I am a Christian, I am in debt to humanity. Because I am a Christian, I am ready to preach the gospel. Because I am a Christian, I am, a not, I am not ashamed of the gospel, of the good news concerning God's Son, Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, I'm a Christian and I know the power of God unto salvation. I know that He changed my life. I can tell you right now that I know that He's changed my life. Has He changed yours? Have you experienced the power of God unto salvation? I mean, it's no maybe. It's a yes or a no. You must know that you've experienced that power. I'm not talking about starting a new chapter in our life. I'm not talking about, we, we call that maybe in the old days, turn over a new leaf. You know, maybe the other side of the leaf's better looking or something. I don't know. But we want to start off a new thing. I'm not talking about getting fired up for church or, or getting fired up for the things of God or any spooky experience that may, some believe, is evidence of our new life. I'm talking about the power of God unto salvation. A, the personal presence of God here, experienced personally. I'm talking about an eternal change that changes everything. An internal change that changes everything. Listen, we don't get saved and then nothing on the outside changes. I realize that it's maybe not day one or day two or maybe even year one or year two, but there is a change that has begun, if it's genuine. Is there evidence of that change? Have you experienced the power of God? In fact, these characteristics, I believe, that Paul lists here are evidence of a changed life, evidence of the power of God in you. And what are these things? Do you recognize your indebtedness to humanity? Do you have something that you know others don't have? Are you ready to share the good news of Jesus Christ? Are these things present in your life or are you ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ? A changed life that experienced the power of God is not ashamed of the power that changed him or her. And if you've never experienced the power of God into salvation, I want to tell you this morning that it is freely given to all and can be freely received by all. First, our, our John chapter 1 verse 12 says, but as many, as many as received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. As many as received him to them gave he power It is believing and receiving. So if you're here this morning, if you have not experienced that power, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Receive that payment for your sin on the cross of Calvary. It's it's more important than the embarrassment of they thought I was saved. It's. It's not even close. Just trust Christ as your Savior. And again, all can receive His payment on the cross because the power of God unto salvation, look again at that verse, the power of God unto salvation is to everyone that believeth. 
Every one that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. There is no barrier. There is no sin barrier. There's no language barrier. There's no cultural barrier. There's no skin color barrier. There's no, there's no barrier at all that the grace of God cannot go through, that the gospel cannot conquer. Believe and receive the Lord Jesus Christ. And as the book of Romans continues here to unfold in this first chapter, Paul kind of breaks the ice, if you will, with the gospel message to a people, again, he's never met. So, okay, I've never met these. I'm going to go right to the gospel. I believe they're saved. I've heard good stories about them. Let's make sure. Let's tell them the gospel message. So he continues with uh, what God has chosen to reveal through Jesus Christ. He continues with what the power of God reveals through Jesus Christ. Look at verse 17 again. Actually, look at 16. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So we see next that God has revealed His righteousness. God has revealed His righteousness. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and in the gospel is the righteousness of God revealed. Notice the progression. The gospel of God, the power of God, the righteousness of God. And quite frankly, there's no righteousness with God. None at all without the power of God, and certainly without the gospel of God. And in context here, uh, in Romans chapter 1, the Bible clearly states here that the gospel is the power of God that reveals the righteousness of God. The gospel is the power of God that reveals the righteousness of God by faith. By faith. Now, all of us know a little bit about what righteousness means. We have some kind of definition of how or how to define the word righteousness. But I want to say this morning, there's truly no definition that can describe the righteousness of God. There's no definition that can describe the holiness of God. There is this argument when uh, a few years ago in one of my college courses in seminary, there was how to properly translate the word parakletos in the Greek in, in John. Uh, when we have the word comforter in our translations here, some translations have helper and all those things. And I started my paper off with, there's no good way to translate it. It's talking about the Holy Ghost. It's talking about God. There's no word on this planet that can describe what the Holy Spirit does for us, how He operates with us. And the same is true of righteousness. There's no definition that describes the righteousness of God. He is a holy God. So it's not something that is understood through education, although we should study it. We are to study to show ourselves approved. But righteousness is revealed by faith. We see it right there in the text. Righteousness is revealed Verse 17, for therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. At first look, God clearly, I want, I want to see this, I want you to see this, because there's two ways to understand this text. But God clearly portrays His righteousness to all people in Christ on the cross. We, Jesus Christ, is the Son of God declared. He is God declared, the express image of God. So whatever righteousness we see of God is in Christ. So God clearly portrayed His righteousness in Christ. But we are speaking here of what it means personally. What is this personal, 
personally to us? What does it have to do with our faith? So when we accept Christ as our personal Savior, we trade, praise God, we trade our wretchedness for His righteousness. Our personal wretchedness for His personal righteousness by faith. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For He hath made Him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He became our sin so that we can become his righteousness. If that's not good news, I don't know what is. He became our sin, and by grace through faith, we can become his righteousness. That is the best news. That is the gospel message. But God's righteousness doesn't stop there as if that we're not good news enough. It doesn't just start or end with salvation. It continues through our sanctification. His righteousness is revealed in the gospel by faith, by accepting the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior. And it continually is revealed in our walk with Him from faith to faith. The just shall live by faith. So the righteousness of God is initially received by grace through faith in Christ, which is the immediate understanding of the text. But I believe this foundational verse, again, this is the thesis statement for the whole book of Romans. It can also be understood that that same righteousness is revealed. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as we live. Again, the just shall live by faith. In other words, let me put it this way. The deeper our faith grows, the greater our recognition of God's righteousness. It just makes sense. The closer you are to something great, the greater that object is. The deeper our faith grows, the greater our recognition of God's righteousness. Notice again that phrase in verse 17. The righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Now keep your thumb there. I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians again. To your right a little bit. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Because when, as I was putting this together, uh, it reminded me of another verse. Now, these, these are two obviously different verses in a different context. But my mind was there, and I believe the Lord led me there. But in 2 Corinthians, not 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, uh, look at verse 18. Verse 18 says, actually... Look up at verse 16 so we can put it in context. I do not want to ever take anything out of context. The Bible says, Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, that's speaking of our hearts, rather, by the way, when our hearts shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away so we can see God. Now the Spirit is that Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Let's read that again. But we all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, in that passage, Paul is writing about our partnership with the Holy Spirit. When we get saved, we get the Holy Spirit. The Bible calls it the earnest of what is ahead of us, but we get the Holy Spirit. And by the way, when we're saved, the Holy Spirit that we receive is all the Holy Spirit we're going to receive. It's not, a much, it's not the question of how much do we get of Him, 
but the question of how much does he have of us? So that Holy Spirit is within us. And Paul is writing about that partnership with, with us, with us and the Holy Spirit. And it's like our partnership is like looking in a mirror and growing according to what the spirit within us is pointing out to us. Does that make sense? So, I mean, picture yourself, um, you're looking, you know, I got dressed this morning and I have a mirror and a wife. The, the wife is a whole lot better than a mirror. Um, she looks better than the mirror. Um, that's for sure. But so you look in the mirror and you can you can see, you know, your hair is out of place. My tie is crooked, you know, whatever. So I adjust those things. What Paul is talking about here is our walk with the Holy Spirit. When we have a witness with the Holy Spirit, he's pointing out things in our life that need to go. Hey, hey, straighten your tire, comb your hair. You know, you missed a pot, you missed a spot shaving. You're fix, he's fixing us so that we can draw closer. We can be changed from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. In other words, we are changed, as this text points out here in 2 Corinthians 3, we are changed from glory to glory. To glory as the Spirit brings out our infirmities into the light of God's glory, and those infirmities are chipped away, and we are conformed more into the image of the Son of God. But back in Romans chapter 1, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, and the closer we are to Him, the more His righteousness is revealed to us. The closer we are to him, the more we see ourselves in the light of his righteousness. And then by faith, we do away with those things in our lives that would otherwise be hidden because we couldn't see them because we we were not close enough to the light. And we grow closer and closer to him by faith, all by faith. I hope that is coming across clear because it is a great concept, a truth that God has chosen to reveal his righteousness in us so that we can be a part of that and be more like him and take on that righteousness, chipping away those things that are in our lives. What a concept. It is an amazing concept. The righteousness of God revealed in man, the righteousness of God revealed in me and in you. The question is for us as believers, the question that I asked myself that I was putting this together, does my faith reveal the righteousness of God? Does your faith reveal the righteousness of God? Remember, the just shall live by faith. And that faith ought to reveal the righteousness of God. Listen, none of us have arrived There's not some great pastor or great church member that's just got it all together. As long as we're in this life, we don't have it together. As long as we're in this spiritual battle called life, there needs to be a chipping away of ourselves so that God's righteousness can be revealed in us through faith. If our current state of faith is not continually, continually revealing Things in our life where we need to improve, can we say that we're living by faith? If our current state of faith is not continually revealing more of God's righteousness in us, are we living by faith? The Bible doesn't say that the just should live by faith, but that the just shall live by faith. It's not something we should do. It is what we do. It is what believers do. It is, you know, 
Two and two equals four. Believers live by faith. It's not a maybe. It's not a should to. It's not an ought to. It's what we do when we are believers. And I have to be honest with you, when I was putting this part of the message together, I was thinking about how I would receive it. So I kind of put myself in my mind's eye in the pew, maybe here on the front row. And, and as I thought about who would be preaching today, I almost left. <laughs> but as I, as I prepared the sermon, again, I pictured myself there in the audience and I thought to myself, why couldn't that preacher up there just preach about fun things? Why couldn't, he, why couldn't he preach about happiness and the love of God and all these things? And these are important. But why does he have to preach a message that convicts me? Why does it have to be a challenge? Why does every time I come to church, that pastor has to challenge me to live better? Why in the world? Why can't he just take me for who I am? Why can't he just, like the rest of the world, I love you just the way you are. Why can't he just accept me? I do. But there's always room. There's always room for improvement. And this passage here tells us that there needs to be a constant chipping away so that I can be conformed into the image of his son. Come as you are, yes, but leave differently. Leave differently. Come to Christ as you are, yes, but leave conformed into the image of his son and to God's son. And as I sat there in the pew, I realized that I guess I am in a spiritual battle. And I guess if that pastor up there was preaching to me and he just didn't talk about that spiritual battle ever, it would be kind of irresponsible. Would it not? I mean, if we were all in a battle, we are. We are in this life. You're in a spiritual battle. Light does not get along with darkness and vice versa. And if your preacher, your pastor, and never spoke on that battle, it's irresponsible. So as I sat there in the pew, I told that preacher, preach on. <laughs> preach on. Let me have it. <laughs> And his response was, the just shall live by faith so that the righteousness of God can be revealed in us for him and for others. And as we look back in Romans, we see that the righteousness of God is not the only thing that is revealed by the power of the gospel. Notice, lastly, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold the truth in unrighteousness because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath showed it unto them for the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made even his eternal power and Godhead so that they are without excuse because that when they knew God they glorified him not as God Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We see the wrath of God. The gospel of God is the power of God. And in that power is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven. One's from faith. One is punishment. One doesn't require faith. The wrath of God does not require our faith. Matter of fact, it comes when we do not have faith. Martin Luther struggled with the, the idea of righteousness. And in his own personal biography, if you will, that was written about him. I guess that would not, whatever. <laughs> Something written about him as he was coming to the Lord. 
Uh, he said, I have problems with righteousness that condemns me. But then when I realized that the same righteousness that condemns me sets me free, my heart was open to the gospel and I received Christ as my Savior. The righteousness. What do you do with Jesus Christ? It is revealed from faith, but the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. Now, we won't park here too long this morning, but I want to give you a few things. Faith in God results in the righteousness of God. Forsaking God results in the wrath of God. And as we have already seen, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. But notice that God's righteousness is first and freely shown in the gospel message. I know that's abundantly clear, and I want to stay there again. Verse 17 begins with the phrase, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed. Well, where is the therein? It is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So yes, faith is required for the righteousness of God to be revealed unto salvation, but the gospel can be clearly heard and seen in Christ, in His Word, and in the world. Remember verse 4, go back to verse 4 real quick. It tells us that Jesus Christ was declared to be the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. Well, who made that declaration? Who declared Jesus to be the Son of God? God the Father. God made that declaration. And to who did He make that declaration to? To us, to the world, to every man. Verse 19 says, That which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. So just to be clear, it is faith in Christ that brings righteousness and eternal life. And Jesus Christ is by far the greatest declaration God has ever declared to man. But He has never left Himself without a witness. All of creation points to Jesus Christ. All of it. All of it points to Jesus Christ. Look at verse 20 again. For the invisible things are clearly uh, of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen at the end of it so that they are without excuse. And verse 19 again, that which may be known of God is manifest in them. We who have rejected Christ at some point in our life or those who are not here and rejected, they know. God says they know. They know. That which may be known of God is in them. They could know if they wanted to know. It's in them. Again, 1 John, or John chapter 1, verse 9 states that God has given light to every man to see. In fact, again, in Romans 1.20, the invisible things of Him are clearly seen. I mean, think about that concept. Invisible things, clearly seen. How? God gave it to us. So if man chooses not to act upon what God has given to him, there's no excuse. If God declared Himself to man... And man chose to ignore that declaration. What excuse can there be? There is no excuse. The fact of the matter is that the gospel of Christ is the crux of life. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The gospel is the foundation of our faith which reveals the righteousness of God. And it is the rejection of the gospel that brings the wrath of God upon man. The gospel, the death, burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ... What shall we do with it? It's up to you. What shall you do with Jesus Christ? When it's all said and done, when you and I depart in death, 
or the Lord returns and all of this is over and we're standing before God by ourselves, will you be without excuse? Or will you reveal the righteousness of God that he has already given you? Has his righteousness been revealed? Or will the wrath of God be revealed? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.